I have nothing nice to say of either American party for their politics of 2020, but I am enormously hopeful that in 2021, both parties will come together, realizing that America can lead the world, solve climate change much faster than the Paris targets, therefore re-establishing its role in the world as a true thought leader and doer and, and actor and, and global actor. And it will be achieved with the magical American combination of private-public partnerships. It will take a massive wartime mobilization effort to effectively address the climate emergency, argues Saul Griffith, physicist, inventor, engineer, and father who wants to preserve the planet for his children. So what does a wartime mobilization look like, and will we have to give anything up in that effort? In this episode, Saul explains. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And in typical 2020 fashion, I'm joined here on Zoom by my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat. He's a partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners. He's also a clean tech investor, and he's the former chief of staff of the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. Hi, Julia. Hi, hi. Uh, then we also have Shane on the line. He's our Republican. He's a former energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan, and he is a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific. Hello, Shane. Hi, Julia. I'm trying to figure out where you are. I've been to your house now, and I I have no idea where you're physically sitting. Uh, greetings from St. Louis, Missouri, one of the few ah. houses here that has solar. Gotcha, <laughs> My husband's gotcha, family gotcha. is uh, blazing the trail over here in, uh, in uh, coal, coal country. Uh, but yeah, so uh, this is you know, one of our last episodes of 2020. We're speaking here at the end of December. And so we wanted to spend time in this episode hearing from an incredible thought leader whose work really has the ability to shape the climate and energy space and really the world for many years to come. So in a moment, everyone will hear from Saul Griffith, who is a MacArthur Genius Awardee, a founder and chief scientist at Other Lab, which is an independent R&D lab that helps government agencies and Fortune 500 companies understand energy infrastructure and build transformational technologies that bring us closer to 100% decarbonization. Saul is also the co-founder of Rewiring America, which is an organization on a mission to create jobs, save Americans money, and solve the climate crisis. Saul, thank you for coming on Political Climate. Hello, nice to be there. Or as I should say, given that I'm calling in from Australia, g'day. Great. Well, there is so much to discuss with you, Saul, about your work at Rewiring America. But uh, as we record this, the details are coming out around a massive omnibus bill, which funds the federal government for the remainder of the fiscal year and provides $900 billion in COVID-19 relief funding. And that same bill also includes meaningful climate and energy policies. So I really wanted to touch on this because I feel like it kind of brings together a lot of themes and policies we've discussed over the past few years, really, on this podcast. So just to set up quickly before I get to your reactions, uh, lawmakers have authorized $35 billion in spending on research and development for wind, solar, energy storage, and other clean power resources. This is actually a culmination of some of the work that Lisa Murkowski and Joe Manchin have been doing in the Senate. This bill also includes a two-year solar tax credit extension, a one-year wind tax credit extension, including five years for offshore wind, which is an emerging area in the U.S., 
There's also two years of tax credits for carbon capture and storage, the 45Q measure. There's a tax credit for second generation biofuels, also $14 billion for transit agencies, which have been really hard hit by the coronavirus pandemic and, and user rates going down. The bill also directs federal agencies to update uh, government programs that oversee renewable energy spending. There's language for reducing market barriers for renewable energy deployment, things like improving permitting and things like that. Also, there are energy efficiency measures, updates to the weatherization assistance program and others that will save consumers and businesses money. And then another landmark piece of this, which Shane, I want your thoughts on, is that the legislation would require the nation's chemical manufacturers to phase down the production and use of coolants called hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs. And that would be declining to 15% of 2012 levels by 2036, or just roughly think of it as an 85% decline. And while these HFCs aren't in the atmosphere as much as CO2, they are massively, they have a huge impact. They trap 1,000 times more uh, heat trapping potency than carbon dioxide. And Shane, you have been working to advance this meaningful piece of, of the bill. So I wanted to quickly get your thoughts. What is the significance of this now being on the eve of looking like it'll pass through Congress and possibly get signed by President Trump? It's incredibly significant. Um, I've had a great opportunity to work with a lot of very smart people, a lot of very motivated people um, from across several sectors. Um, and of course, the environmental community, Republicans, Democrats. So it's actually been one of the more cool things we've been able to work on at our firm because there's really no us versus them mentality in this legislation. It was just a matter of trying to figure out you know, how to get it done and, and, and who the most important stakeholders were and, and, and making sure they were heard. Um, it's also, you know, critically important to notice that I talk a lot on this podcast, and I know people roll their eyes about the importance of bipartisan work in the legislature. And if you come to think about the biggest climate bill the U.S. has ever passed being during President Trump's tenure, uh, that's worth a conversation. Now, that doesn't mean it's the biggest climate bill the U.S. will ever pass. But to date, um, we attacked greenhouse gas emissions in the United States through legislation. That's never happened before. Um, you know, the Clean Air Act arguably did, arguably didn't, you know, we can have that debate some other time. But I guess where I really want to really want to weigh in here is that there's a big debate, I think, you know, out there on Twitter, on the internet, maybe even in, in serious places, about whether or not polluters or those who emit should be brought into the, the room to be part of the solution, or whether or not they should be punished and villainized. In this particular instance, it was the coolant industry manufacturers, it was the chemical manufacturers who make these coolants that have such a high greenhouse gas emissions, who came together to solve this problem, who lobbied hard, who used their capital, their, you know, their sweat equity, their connections, their relationships to find a path forward to passing legislation that ultimately will now solve the problem that we have with HFC emissions in the United States and frankly around the world. A couple moments of background, and I know we've done this on past episodes, but this was in relation to, this is not ratification of the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. But HFCs were the focus and target of the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. What a lot of people don't know, Julia, is that even if a U.S. president submitted the Kigali Amendment for ratification, and even if the Senate ratified it, there was still no legal authority to act on it, meaning that there had to be legislation passed either before or after ratification for the Kigali Amendment to have any meaning in the United States. So I'll shut up now, but we're very excited about it. And I think it's a good chance, just a good opportunity to highlight what it means when industry comes into the room and asks for more protections for the environment and uses their weight and their capital and their connections to get it done. Am I allowed to jump in here? Absolutely. All right, so this is an issue near and dear to my heart. Emissions from refrigerants are about 7% of global emissions, so it's super important. 
another half another seven percent of our emissions are the machines that they're running our refrigerators and our air conditioners the energy of them so uh, super important a lot of those refrigerants are in cars uh, and in your refrigerators and in your air conditioners and at the end of the life when those things are disposed of they often leak that's where that comes from we need to address it there are natural refrigerant alternatives and there's supercritical co2 that can be used as a refrigerant both of those technologies are working today um, and i would just say 2036 is too far out because we have solutions that can happen faster and uh i you know i think industry has to be involved in these decisions and um but we're not actually we're allowing the old industry to have the dominant voice in that conversation not the new industry players that actually have the solutions the CFC to HFC transition that is celebrated was actually very cynical by the companies involved, Dow, et cetera. And I agree it's good to have these people at the table, but um, Dow went because the patents were coming, Dow was coming off patents for CFCs in the 80s, so that's why they were on side and, uh, to move to HFCs. And the HFCs are coming off patent right now, which is why Dow is on side. And so you have to be worried that they're going to do a replay of it and try to find another proprietary refrigerant that they will sort of get market advantage or monopoly on uh, this time around. So um, history says uh, that they are they come to the table cynically. And, and Saul, so I guess my question for you would be, does it matter why, right? From, from my perspective, if you can get industry to pull their weight and you have the environmental community pulling their weight in moving legislation or, or updating policies in a way that reduces uh, the emissions. Oh, I'm 200% behind having industry at the table pulling their weight. But you should call their bull and say, we've seen you play this game before and you didn't do it very well. And what you're angling for here is something proprietary, whereas supercritical CO2 and natural refrigerants such as propane they work right now. So why are you waiting until 2036? Let's just get this done. So I would hold their feet further to the flame and have them at the table. And I think what will be interesting is to see you know, how this can translate to industrial policy in the CO2 space, because I, I do think if there's no profit motive uh, for someone, there's never going to be anything you know, that gets accomplished in Washington. So we sort of need someone to have that um, that perspective. We need someone to want to make money on something because then you can carry, you know, startups and a lot of uh, Asian companies that would like to make a lot of money selling you working non HFC refrigerant solutions right now today. So there's plenty of people. It's just not the American existing players. Uh, you know, without industry at the, on, on this particular issue, we would have. You're right. It was U.S. industry, and that was part of our talking point. Frankly, was. Um, these are going to be domestic jobs here rather than jobs that could be outsourced to China. So that was actually part of what you're identifying was part of the strategy, not just sort of incidental to it. I also wonder if it's the same industry players on the CO2 side that would have the same you know, impact on the discussion. Like, will oil and gas companies truly become the advocates for decarbonization? I think that is been yet to that is yet to happen we're still waiting on like a true shift in their investments from oil and gas to clean even though that transition has begun but i think if you're looking at the trend for companies like shell um they're on track to arrive at that moment in about 2025 given the rate like i get to see enough of their internal discussion to to, to have hope that they're moving in the right direction i actually i've got a book coming out 
with MIT Press next year where I propose the crazy idea that we should just buy out the fossil assets of these companies because that's what keeps them on the wrong side of this conversation. Uh, people don't like that because I think traditional environmentalists want revenge on the emitters, but I think there's a great historical anecdote. England actually bought out the slave owners, uh, so they paid off the slaves as an asset. Uh, America didn't. That's why America went into civil war. So it did cost a lot for the British government to do that. In fact, they only paid off all of those loans two years ago, like 150 years later. But I think we need to, we should think about a similar approach with, with fossil. How do you, you know, the reason they're going to go down fighting is they're going to go down fighting over their um, proven reserves, which they've already financialized in the markets. So, you know, it's not that much money that we can't just borrow it and buy them out. And then they will be capitalized then. And, and you know, as long as we make sure that they use that capital to then do the fully decarbonized sort of electrified solutions, then I think, I think that's a reasonable thing that should be in the political conversation. That might be the grand political bargain here that we need to make. They did that in Can in Canada, in Alberta, with the coal plants. They just bought them out. They're like, let's just be done with this. And the price actually wasn't as high as people, I think, thought it would be, although depending on who you ask, it was still too expensive. But the point is it could be done. So before we move on from this legislation, Brandon, I just wanted to get your two cents. You know, people are saying, and it has been reported in the New York Times, that this is historic, not only because this is the first real climate legislation to pass or to advance in over a decade. We should note that as we sit here late on Monday evening, Eastern time, the bill has yet to be finalized and still needs signature. But assuming it goes through, first major climate bill in a long time, Plus, it has received support from Republicans, as, as Shane noted there, which has been a departure from their willingness in the past few years to, to go away from President Trump and his agenda to roll back climate policy. So does this signal anything to you in terms of your optimism for the future and bipartisanship? Or do you think this was kind of a one-off legislation had been kicking around for a while, so not too surprising, but you're still hesitant to think about where this will go in future? Yeah, I have a few comments. Uh, number one, you know, Shane said, you know, most historic climate legislation. Uh, I would argue that the Recovery Act that we passed in 2009 and the $90 billion that we invested uh, that has led to the rapid decrease in the cost of solar, the cost of wind, the cost of batteries, the cost of LEDs and such was very historic. Uh, point number two, um, this should not be rare. How did we go 10 years without doing anything in between that uh, and, and what is about to pass? Uh, that is a problem. Uh, number three, uh, congrats to Shane. I know he did a lot of work on this, on the HFCs behind the scenes. Uh, it's a huge win. So I think that this is encouraging. If this was something that was going to be, and what it should be to solve climate, like a yearly type of endeavor, <laughs> you know, where we're passing legislation on a regular basis uh, to do this and we're doing it in a bipartisan way. Um, uh, that is what I would be, you know, most excited about. It's more, I think, to Shane, uh, is this going to be a one-off uh, or is Mitch McConnell going to go back to, as soon as Donald Trump isn't president, is Mitch McConnell going to go back to the posture he had when we, when I worked for President Obama, which is, you know, I'm going to obstruct everything and try to uh, grind government to a halt, make you look bad, blame you, and then try to take power in the midterms. 
there's certainly not going to be an annual climate bill, right? There's probably not even going to be a, a what was the proper word for a once a decade? There's not going to be a regular, I think, schedule of, of climate bills. I think the reason I dug hard into industry is not even so much to talk about the HFC bill, but thinking forward, if utilities and NGOs and you know, uh, auto manufacturer, auto OEMs, and all the people who would be part of sort of an electrified future, part of a decarbonized future, if they all work together like they did in this case, then yeah, absolutely, there could be a climate bill. And I'm not sure it matters who's in charge of the Republican Party or who's in charge of the Democrat Party or who's in the White House. I think that's sort of the, the framework, right, is can all the people, not just, you know, the environmental groups, not just industry, not just sort of third parties, but can everyone sort of line up together and say, wait, we can all make a lot of money here? And save the planet. This is a good thing. And if they can get there, then you get your you know far left Democrat votes. You get your conservative sort of pro business chamber of commerce votes. You get a coalition of, of individuals who can move legislation. And that's what I'm excited about, frankly. Let's let's um, unpack that a little bit. So I think you should work back from the climate you want. What are we trying to save after all? Um, the reality is, if you want to hit a one and a half or two degree target, which should be the range we're shooting for. You do not get there unless the US does something akin to its industrial effort to win World War II. We simply will miss all the scheduled targets to, for anything like two degrees if we continue on this 2050 net zero trajectory that was sort of verbally set but not scientifically based. Um, with Paris and the other commitments. That just doesn't get you there. So what you have to have is world, yeah, you know, that, that Great Depression, World War II, Roosevelt era um, giant effort, and uh, that has to be bipartisan. The way it became bipartisan for World War II was they did cost plus for industry to manufacture all the critical munitions. So that satisfied the Republican side of the House at that time, but they also had to include union labor clauses for those productions that satisfied Roosevelt's left flank. So we need something that ambitious, otherwise we simply don't get there. The reality is you can now squint and see a solution where America does create all these jobs, it does save everyone money, a huge number of American industries could win, um, but they won't win on the trajectory we, we are on because China and other Southeast Asian countries are going to beat them to the technologies of the future unless we go very, very big. And by very, very big, I mean, you know, wartime effort. Saul, you know, for listeners of our show, they know I've been talking about this World War II style mobilization effort for years since we've been doing this podcast. One thing I've been thinking about, um, you know, because it sort of raises the question, can we still do that? You know, can this country still do something uh, at that kind of scale? And I'm wondering what you think about Operation Warp Speed. I mean, this is similar, right? I mean, aren't we doing this right now with the vaccine? The government is playing a massive role working with the industry to say, here's this outcome we need. Let's partner together and scale this up and have a mass distribution very quickly. And even getting the vaccine, you know, was a public-private partnership like that. Do you think about solving climate. What do you think about Operation Warp Speed? Is that sort of an example of how we could do this for climate as well? I think, I think, I don't know enough of the details to say anything with certainty, but I think, you know, in the cartoon in my head of Operation Warp Speed, you're absolutely right. 
probably left to their own devices, all of the companies would have developed vaccines over a five-year period and it would have cost a little bit less to do it because they wouldn't be doing everything with their pants on fire. But we spent more money. We got them much, much faster. It's a great outcome. Everyone should be high-fiving. And it was only through private-public partnerships. You know, honestly, I think that's the only way that you'll get the climate action at scale that we need is public-private partnerships because it, you know it's way beyond what government can do and it's way beyond what industry can do. And so unless both are marching in the same direction, we just don't get there. So we need it. And I think it can't be a moonshot because that's been taken. It can't be a wartime effort because that offends some people and, it's, and warp speed was a great name, but it can't be warp speed. So we need something <laughs> for this... Um, we should invent a term right now. Oh, boy. Yeah, the Republicans are better at branding. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's fair. It'll oh, be a boy. call to action to our listeners. Come up with a new name for this uh, mobilization that needs to happen. Um, but let's take a second to rewind here. You know, I really wanted to start with the news of the day, and I'm so glad we got to touch on that. But I do want to get in, you know, just what is rewiring America all about? Because this is where you laid out your vision, Saul, for what needs to happen. And it's oriented around the electrification of everything. And you focus on, as you write, what's technically necessary to make a climate solution more so than the politics. And of course, we all trend toward politics. This is a political show, and I'm sure we'll circle back on that. But just lay out what is in Rewiring America, the handbook, and what you think is technically necessary to meet our climate goals. I think it's very easy to get from technically necessary to politics. So I'm going to try and do that efficiently. Um, Rewiring America is, is, is an organization that's trying to eliminate all of the frictions. And, I'll, and you know, so there's financing frictions. There's industrial scale-up challenges there's regulatory challenges to getting to zero carbon on the time required. So we're, we're focused on doing that. But to really give you a full picture of what we're doing, I, I'll give you a little bit of the history of rewiring America. So we were, we were studying, I was studying sort of as a hobby, but then with some money from the Department of Energy, the history of energy information administration and how we actually present the energy challenge, which is the carbon and climate challenge. And so we actually created the Energy Information Administration, the Department of Energy, and the um, EPA, all in a very brief period between 1973, when the first oil crisis began, and 1976. So it really all came in under Nixon and finished under Ford, and then Carter took credit for it, roughly. At that time, we didn't really know how America was using energy, but we knew we had a huge problem, which was the 15% shortage because of the oil embargo. So we created the Energy Information Administration to measure what the problem was and then to provide a, a suggested answer. So they somewhat arbitrarily divided the economy into commercial, residential, industrial, and transportation. And then they realized that we were 15% short on oil. And so the answer at that time, because it was clouded by the politics of the 1970s, 1970 Earth Day environmentalism, was that we will use efficiency. That gave us... Uh, the EPA fuel standards, fuel economy standards, and that gave us appliance standards and these Energy Star appliances. Because if all appliances and all vehicles were 15% more efficient, we've solved this supply side problem of the oil crisis. So that, unfortunately, that thinking has pervaded for the 50 years subsequently, and we're still trying to solve the climate problem with this sort of efficiency focus, which you can't efficiency your way to zero, what we need is transformation at this point. And transformation isn't just a supply side problem. Transformation is all about the demand side, where, how we use all of the energy. Once you get to there, you realize 
that if you redrew the map of how um, America used energy, not based on things like industry and transportation and residential commercial, but sort of on the home and on small businesses. So the energy decisions made by homes and small businesses is actually 65% of our emissions because they choose what cars are in their driveway. They choose what appliances are heating their home, uh, what's refrigerating. So it's a different perspective on looking at it that you arrive at when you look at all of the things on the on the use side. So our all the, the collective behavior of all of our furnaces, all of our kettles, all of our cooktops, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, it means we've, we've really got to focus on that uh, demand side up. So rewiring America looks sort of, most people look from the left to the right. So that's where you see all the climate legislation. Let's cut down emissions from coal plants. Let's you know eliminate natural gas emissions. That's the supply side emissions focus. Whereas you, if you focus from the demand side up, the story is about all the things that are going to improve in our lives as we decarbonize. We'll get electric vehicles that are quieter. We'll get cleaner air in our streets. We'll get cleaner air in our homes when we heat our homes with electric heat pumps instead of with natural gas. Uh, leading cause of respiratory illness in homes is still from our cook stoves and burning natural gas to heat our homes. So we'll get health benefits as well. And if we can do all of those things right, you, we can now model it out. I think Brandon mentioned at the beginning of the show, solar costs are coming down, battery costs are coming down, electric vehicle costs are coming down. All of the prices are on target that by about by the prices that we'll see in 2025, just on where industry is going right now, if you decarbonize the average American home, you'd probably save them $2,000 in 2020 per year. So in 2021, if you went out and you had to buy a Tesla and you had to put solar on your rooftop at today's prices, you would probably cost you three or $4,000 per household per year. So we're right at the inflection point. Unfortunately, we have policymakers making policy as though 2020 technology is here to stay when we need to be making policy of where the prices and where the technology is going to be predictably be at 2025. And if we're doing that, we're going to be saving every home money. And it transforms the climate change conversation from, oh, it's the Green New Deal is going to cost us $20 trillion to um, this electrification of America is going to save every household $2,500 a year. This electrification project is going to have huge health benefits in communities. It will halve the amount of energy use in the US because electric machinery is so efficient um, without even doing it normal efficiency, which efficiency mostly means to Americans smaller cars, smaller homes, and colder set temperatures. You don't really need to do that. You get all of the win by the electrification process and powering that uh, electricity with renewables and with nuclear. Okay. Whoa, that was a monologue. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> sorry, the audience. That was great. We needed to get that out there, but lots I feel like I want to pick apart. So, like, my first question is, when you say electrify everything, you literally mean everyone's homes, even the ones that exist today, we'd suddenly be running on, you know, we'd have induction stove, we'd have uh, electrified HVAC systems, we'd have, you know, so the heat pumps, we'd have electric hot water heaters, electric cars, like you're saying, and you see a vision where all of that can happen. Because, I mean, I... 
I just want to say, and I think this informed your thinking too, is that you uh, tried to go solar on your own home. I'm currently looking at my new home and trying to electrify the HVAC system, but it's a expensive. My current system's not that old. It would require a whole bunch of like renovation and investment and, and even some construction where it's just like, uh, like how would I ever justify that? And the reality is I don't think it would even save me money. In fact, in California, it might cost me more. So just paint a little more of a picture of like what exactly that, this would mean for a consumer. This is perfect. And this is exactly how you get from what technologically is required to politics. So in July, I was living in California and I paid $3.20 US per watt for a solar installation on my roof, which turns out to be about after financing 21 or 22 cents a kilowatt hour, which is just slightly more expensive than the electricity that PG&E would sell me in San Francisco and more expensive than the average price in electricity in the US, which is 13.8 cents. So not a fantastic deal. In Australia, um, in the house I'm on, I can order tomorrow for somebody to show up and install 12 kilowatt solar system for 95 cents a watt which after financing pencils at five or six cents per kilowatt hour, five or six cents per kilo to six cents per kilowatt hour is cheaper than the cheapest electricity in the U S in fact, the average cost of transmission and distribution and billing in the U S is 7.8 cents a kilowatt hour. Even if you could produce energy for free, it costs you more to go through the grid than it does to, to buy Australian solar. Right? So then you have to say, well, why is that true? Um, a few reasons. There's building code problems in America. There are permitting problems in America. Um, and then because of all of those, the sales cost goes up, et cetera, et cetera, and, and it compounds. In America, you might say that solar is sold as a custom home retrofit every time with custom installation labor and multiple layers of overhead. In Australia, solar is sold like an appliance. One very clever political thing Australia did was to run a certification program to pre-certify all of the solar installers. So in effect, the installers become the permitting agency. And that's how you that's how you do it. So it's not magic. I mean, in fact, Australia is doing those installations. I think the average salary is about 35 Australian dollars per hour. So um, much, much better than probably the people are getting paid to install solar in the US. Yet still, the cost is three times lower. Saul, so when you tell people this, um, especially, you know, you, I think you said you lived in Northern California, the, the truth of, you know, pretty much every single problem that needs to be solved is that there probably needs to be, you know, some serious policy change, but then there also just needs to be a reduction of red tape, a streamlining of processes, a shortening of timeframes, easier permitting. That is not traditionally acceptable in the U.S., especially on the left and probably especially up in Northern California. When you have these conversations from a scientific perspective, how do people respond to that? Do they agree with you that's necessary or do you get pushback? Oh, and no, it gives you pushback, um, except for all the interest groups. And so, yeah, I'm going to keep everyone guessing on, my, seeing as though this is a bipartisan show, I keep everyone guessing on my politics at the end of the show. Um, <laughs> Place your bets, everybody. But uh, you would have to say that the majority of own goals in the US are regulatory red tape. Um, a lot of those nominally come from health and safety perspective, um, but they end up adding increased costs. And so we need a huge amount of, I, I, I'm, I'm careful about using the term deregulation, but you, you want to 
be much smarter about regulations. And just to give you an example um, of the perverse incentives in regulations. So the 1906 or 7 San Francisco earthquake, all of the homes were lit by lights with, that were natural gas. It was the fires after the earthquake that caused huge problems. So they created a building code because the solution to a natural gas leak in a home is a fireman. That's why they carry an axe to go to your roof and punch a hole in the roof so the natural gas, which is lighter than the air, escapes out the roof of your house. So then you have to have a regulation that's four foot setback from the edge of your roof so that the fireman can get up there and hit it with a, an axe. But that regulation then gets cut and pasted into a whole bunch of city codes all over America. And now you can't put solar within four foot of the edge of your roof. So we literally have, and that is to illustrate the following point. We wrote regulations for a hundred years around fossil fuels as the thing in your mind that you are solving for health and safety issues for. And those regulations perversely are now the regulations that are in the way and stopping us and adding increased costs to a lot of the solutions to these problems. And so there's a huge amount of work and a lot of it, you know, federal incentives can do some, but actually most of the real heavy lifting, and this is part of what Rewiring America is trying to do, is to go into all of these local jurisdictions and undo the red tape that is uh, adding unnecessary costs to these things. So one of the analogies, tell me if this is accurate, but may be helpful for our listeners is, you know, a couple of decades ago, when you wanted to put a satellite on your home to get direct TV or dish TV, uh, it was a big home construction project. Getting that permitted uh, was a real pain in the ass. Uh, and But because there was one central agency in DC, the FCC, um, they went to them and they created like a checklist, uh, simple criteria. And they said, look, if you satisfy this checklist, it's approved. And then that was able to help launch, you know, DirecTV and, and, and uh, Dish TV because you could get that. You go online, think about the process now. You put your, you know, address in, boom, 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 you get your price and they come out and it's done and it's super easy. Uh, but there is no one entity for that on, you know, solar uh, or battery. It's all this local Byzantine, very fractured process, all these different rules depending on the jurisdiction. Is that a similar analogy? That's exactly what we're talking about. We're, we're, we're dangerously close to writing federal climate policy on this show in real time right now. Anyone can take this. Run with it. <laughs> I think it's really important to do what Brandon's encouraging. Think from the machines at the end that are using the fossil fuels backwards and think about all of the red tape that's in the way. And let's, so let's list those machines in the home because it's a small list. It's the 2.1 cars that are in the average U.S. home. It's the furnace that's most likely burning natural gas in the home. You need, um, it's the cooktop that's most likely burning natural gas in the home. It's the hot water heater that's most likely burning natural gas in the home. And maybe the dr washer dryer. Maybe, yes, and often the dryer and occasionally the washer, but the dryers are often natural gas. So we need, what is the answer? You need about eight things. You need to put solar on the person's roof so they have access to this lowest cost electricity in the world, right? And Australian rooftop solar will never be beat by the US grid unless there's some major transformation just because the cost of the grid infrastructure is expensive. You need a battery for the home. You need a heat pump for the hot water heater. You need a heat pump for the furnace. You need an induction stove instead of the natural gas stove. And then you'll probably need to upgrade the load center. That's the ugliest, most neglected, but most important box in your house. That's your connection between you and the grid. And you need all of those things to be replaced by every house in the nation 
at the approximate time period that those things are replaced. So an average car, you know, people buy cars every 12 years. The average age is about 12 years in the US for cars. The average age of water heaters, I can't believe I know these things is 14 years. The average age of furnaces is 18 years. The average age of the load center is about 20, 25 years. So every time anyone replaces any one of those machines in the home in the next 20 years, it needs to be with the electric alternative. And those things need to be powered wind and solar. And that's the recipe for hitting a two degree target. If you, if you let everyone do another five years of installing the fossil fuel one, we'll miss the target. So we basically need 100% adoption as soon as possible. And then we've talked about the red tape that's in the way of the solar, but there's red tape in the way of the furnaces and the dryer, et cetera. Some of those are just because America chose 110 volts. Uh, you need 240 volts to drive a lot of these heavy current appliances. So it might cost you $900 for a shiny induction stove. In fact, I just bought one for my house in San Francisco, but it cost me $2,500 to hook it up to the 240 volt connection, which I had to run across the house using $250 an hour electrical, professional electrical labor. So the things we need to solve are like, how do you make that connection of these five or six critical things cost $100 or $200 for each installation and not $2,000 extra for each one? Because as you mentioned Julia, you're on this journey with your own home and you're finding that it sort of works, except then somebody says, oh, the solar was, you know, or the the, the stove, the furnace is $2,000, but the installation will be 4000 Yeah. And no one has all those answers handily in one place. I do want to give a shout out for uh, Nate Adams, who's known as Nate the House Whisperer uh, on the internet. Uh, he's like literally literally wrote the book on HVAC 2.0, and I commend him for doing like this sales process. It doesn't even talk about environmentalism until the very end, if you care. It's more about how would you like to walk into a room that has a perfect temperature all the time? And I was like, yeah, I, I would. Um, but apart from him, there's no one who just has a handy thing all in one place that tells you what your interconnection fees would be, including the appliances you know we're renovating a kitchen there's a designer who has some of that information but not what you just talked about so i took a note check induction stove installation fees i know you wanted to tie the stimulus package just announced to um the show i didn't see anywhere in there training two million electricians right I didn't see anywhere in there the training program for uh solar installers and i and i, and I say that very pointedly a because it's jobs but b Today, if your hot water heater fails or your air conditioner fails or your furnace fails, it's very difficult to find an installer or a contractor. So these are the real frictions of, of, of this transformation. In fact, probably someone will show up in a truck and they'll say, uh, I can have a heat pump hot water for you in six weeks, but they're a little bit noisy and I can do this natural gas one today. And then you look at your wife who hasn't had a shower, has had cold showers for three days. And she says, buy that one now because I don't want to go six weeks without my car. But then in that decision, you've locked in 14 years of emissions from that natural gas hot water heater. So the reality is our contractor and installer network, so let's be honest, all the majority of jobs that are going to be created by this transformation are not in manufacturing. They're local jobs in your zip code by people who probably drive a white truck and their installation and maintenance jobs. And we need to provide support and training, right? We also need to get rid of the friction that when, you're, when your hot water heater dies or your furnace dies and it's the middle of winter, you don't buy the electric one because it's more expensive up front. 
it will say yes it will save you money over the 10-year life easily but right then you know we know that 40 percent of american homes can't access 400 dollars, and that's that was before COVID, right so most people are making these infrastructure decisions that lock in emissions under financial distress so they choose the cheapest upfront option which unfortunately in the majority of cases isn't is a fossil fuel based option so we also need like a revolution in point of purchase financing that enables the cheapest solution at that moment to that householder to be the correct solution so you can sort of see how policy has it and regulation has a big influence on a lot of these things it's industrial policy it's uh training programs it's local regulations, it's building codes, model building codes, et cetera. We need all of these pieces to come together if we're going to do this on time. Well, and I would say, too, on, on top of that, um, especially in the car sale model, even if money is not an issue for you as a specific you know, individual, you go and you try to buy a car. And if you want you know, the, the fully electric you know, plug-in model, um, you ask a car salesman, okay, so what do I need to do to my home? What, what, what do I need to have upgraded to make sure that I can charge this? And they're going to redirect you to like a Ford Explorer immediately because they know how to sell it. They know how it works. You know how it works. But, you know, it would be nice whether the utilities had representatives there or someone else did. If someone said, you know what, here's what it's going to cost. But we have a tech on the way to your home right now. And, you know, or by this weekend, we're going to have you fully set up to plug this thing and you got to pay for it. Or maybe there's a better financing option. I don't know. But even if cost is not an issue, I guess what I'm saying is. It was, I do this for a living and I was overwhelmed when I was trying to buy an EV and I did just give up. I thought, you know what? All right, next time. Cause I just, I don't, I don't want to do this right now. Yeah. We need an army of people and, and rewiring America is trying to build a volunteer army. We've had great responses. We got a whole bunch of volunteers signed up to literally start fighting this fight first for yourself. So you know where the problems are, but then like, okay, well, I went through the pain in the ass, which was getting solar on my roof and a heat pump in my basement and two electric vehicles in the garage. How do I make it cheap for everyone who follows me in my community, right? And it is, it comes down, I think it's really, really useful to think of each one of these things as a point of purchase challenge. But again, the good news is there's only half a dozen things. It's your cars, it's your <laughs> it's your stove, it's your furnace, it's your hot water heater. It's a small number, but we got we to gotta make those experiences great. And the reality is that... Um, it will be small businesses and startups that realize these are giant opportunities and you can already see this. There's a company in Australia, for example, called Bright E, B-R-I-G-H-T-E. They have a fabulous founder um, called Catherine. She is killing it here by offering 0% financing at point of purchase for home improvements that decarbonize. And she has built a contractor network that goes with it so that, you know, you call Bright, they not only provide the zero interest financing at, at the point of purchase for you, but they will get the right contractors who, who speak heat pump and electric vehicle as a native tongue. They're, they're playing the right game. And I think um, there's a whole bunch of fintech that's going to be brought to this. And there's a whole bunch of, honestly, just customer journey innovation that is going to make this possible. And yeah, it's going to be a little bit costly for the first few years, but you know, that's because batteries are $200 a kilowatt hour today, but they'll be $75 a kilowatt hour in 2024. And that's the price you need them at. Once American solar is at Australian solar prices, everything else falls into place. We're moving on February 1st and want to electrify our new home. And I serve on the board of Sunrise Movement with Donnell Baird uh, from Block Power. So 
we're working with Block Power right now to go through this process to try to electrify the new home. Yeah, the, the, the early players are emerging and I think there, there are fortunes to be made and a world to be saved. So I, I think the interests can align here. But I think the real useful innovation of rewiring America is focus on the machines at the end and what needs to happen to make them decarbonized and then just relentlessly eliminate these problems, support the organizations and the companies that are providing solutions that eliminate these problems. And then honestly, with the right federal policy, just chipping away at, at getting industry up to scale and, and little innovations that will further decrease the cost, that's how we get there. And honestly, it can be done by 2035 and we've got to be realistic. That's when it needs to be done by. And so we're going to hear a lot of announcements this year about 2050, but you have to remember that that was language that was written into the IPCC things about 15 years ago. <laughs> takes a long time to get through. I think what we're going to see is every, every year we're going to take a couple of years off that end goal. And so we'll see all governments in the world will come out probably in 2021, saying 2050, 2060. But I think by 2025, they'll all be saying 2035. So we're simultaneously going to have the solutions coming online economically as our ambitions ramp up and the timeline comes down. To, to ground this, I'd love to bring in some research that just came out from Jesse Jenkins and his colleagues at Princeton. And they basically outlined how how much really the United States needs to invest over the next 10 years to hit that 2050 net zero goal, recognizing that that's probably still too far away. But their point was not all bad. It was like, look, we've already made massive gains. Uh, they talk about the renewable energy deployment, for instance. Just this year, energy companies will install 42 gigawatts of new wind and solar, which is smashing records even amid the pandemic. However, that annual pace would need to nearly double over the next decade and then keep soaring, transforming landscapes in states like Florida or Missouri, where I currently am now and coal is still very heavily uh, on the grid. So I guess... When you just think of those sheer numbers, Saul, like, how do you think that happens? How do you get this wartime mobilization effort? Do we just have to come up with that good name for it and we're good? Or like, how does this happen? I think the danger in, in the Jesse Jenkins work, I haven't read it, so maybe there isn't here, but the Green New Deal certainly suffered from this. They talk about the total cost. And for sure, it's going to be $20 trillion plus to transform all the sectors of the economy. But to give you an analogy and bring it back to that World War II, um, we spent, I think it was $186 billion to win the world, world War II for the Allies, America. It would, the, the GDP was about $100 billion at that time. So it took two GDPs to win the war. Um, it's only going to take one to one and a half GDPs to completely transform America to fully decarbonized. Um, but the reality is, if, you know, when we do our modeling, not based on voodoo, but based on the predictable price of solar, wind, batteries, electric vehicles, heat pumps, in about 2025, you actually start to see a 300 to 500 billion dollar a year saving in the U.S. on its energy costs. So we've got to stop thinking about it as this giant. Yes, it is a huge amount of capital, but it's actually not really that much in the grand scheme of global capital flows. And it's really only a you know it's not even a multiple. It's a, a, a it's a, it's roughly a GDP's worth of investment. And it pays itself back once we get to these magic cost targets that are just falling everywhere in the world. So really, we should use the term, it's an investment with a great return on investment, and we, we need to start now. So maybe that's what we, what we, how we need to think about it. 
Well, I don't have the right apples to apples comparison of costs and timelines, but for reference, your work at Rewiring America, Saul, finds that this rapid decarbonization mobilization will cost between 20 and $25 trillion over 20 years, but ultimately the average household will see energy savings of around $1,000 to $2,000 per year. Jesse's work at Princeton states that building a net zero America will require immediate large-scale mobilization of capital and at least $2.5 trillion in additional capital investment into energy supply, industry, buildings, and vehicles over the next decade relative to business as usual. So I don't have the business as usual numbers. I don't have one succinct number here to to peg their plan at. Uh, But the plan also does state that this is affordable. So the total annualized U.S. energy expenditures would increase by less than 3% over the 2021 to 2030 period under this Princeton uh, analysis. And in all the scenarios they analyzed, energy costs would remain smaller as a share of the economy than they were during the 2000s. And that's not even including the, the public health benefits then too, and the, and the better technology and the comfort, you know, all of that too. And the cost of the avoidance of catastrophe as well. Right. Which financial markets are now actually putting real numbers on. Yeah. And, and we're, we're absolutely seeing it. You know, I'm, it, it is interesting in Australia, we've had such horrendous bushfires the last few years that, uh, you actually see a situation. This is incredible. Think about the politics of this. We have the left and the right trying to compete with each other for the most audacious climate plan in Australia. I see that happening in the US. I, I could imagine a Republican winning in 2024 on a strong, stronger than the Democrats climate plan because it's going to be made in America and, and save American money. And that, that'll be their messaging and they'll win on it. You hear people say, this is incredible too, in Australia. We're not going to be 100% renewable. We're going to be 700% renewables. What does that mean? We're going to be so good at it that we're going to create giant export industries. America could, doesn't, it's got more population, so it can't quite do that. But for sure, America should be 200% renewable and it should be exporting these technologies and these solutions globally. That sounds like the America that I knew and loved as a child, right? Hugely ambitious, leading the world, not just focused on the domestic. 90%, 100% doesn't sound very good. Doesn't sound like a muscle car. Doesn't sound like winning. 200%. I love it. <laughs> 200% winning. Is like reaching the end of the drag strip faster than everyone else. And honestly, that's where we've got to get the American mindset to. And uh, I think it can happen. And I think it, it will be bipartisan. And it and it's going to tread on a few of the the weaknesses on the left where we confuse issues and we tie too many of these climate solutions to other other things we want to win but obviously you know the right has been terrible and obstructionist so there's there's plenty of faults to 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 hand out well on that side you know you mentioned the left and one of the the energy climate policy issues that comes up is all renewable versus a more you know diverse mix of energy resources and you you quickly mentioned nuclear early on and this also relates to the Jesse Jenkins research i just mentioned because they say there are various pathways to getting to net zero by 2050 the renewables one just happens to have some issues on interconnection, like getting these projects online and nimbyism, people not necessarily wanting the sheer amount of of solar projects, for instance, it would take in big fields along roads and in communities. So it's, it's technically feasible, but maybe not practical. So where do you come down on, you know, what set of resources we need uh, to, to do this? And I'm thinking more at the utility scale here. 
Uh, I believe we can do it 100% renewables and we can even balance that grid. And those arguments are weak at this point, the people who don't think you can. Um, what about land use? So I think land use is worthwhile um, to talk about. You need to install roughly... Um, the America, America today uses basically about 3,000 um, gigawatts of power, uh, 3,200 of fossil fuels and everything. If you electrify everything, all of the end uses, you'll only need about 1,500 gigawatts, a little bit less than half. That's, again, no efficiency. That's just better better, better cars, electric, better homes, electric, etc. The current electricity grid delivers about 440 gigawatts on average throughout the year. So we need to roughly triple the amount of electricity delivered. So let's just ground the conversation. We need three times more electricity. Then you say, okay, where's that going to come from? That 1,500 gigawatts, you would need to install an area equivalent to all of America's roads or a little bit more. So imagine every highway you drive on, an equivalent highway next to it that's made out of solar panels. That's the amount if you do it all with solar. Um, That's a lot. But it turns out that we have a huge amount of parking spaces in America. About, there's 20 parking spaces for vehicle. If you just covered all of our parking spaces, you'd probably do half of that electricity. If you cover all of our roofs with solar to the National Renewable Energy Labs, NREL's uh, technical potential, you'll get 200 to 300 gigawatts there. So if we use surfaces and structures that are going to be sitting there pointing up anyway, we get an awful lot of the solar. The wind co-locates with agriculture beautifully. You, you know, it, it, it can happen. But I think that is to then have, let's, let's have a conversation about the other two candidates here. One is nuclear. America produces about 100 gigawatts of nuclear today, about a quarter of our delivered electricity. It's incredibly reliable and it works all, all day, every day. That's the nice thing about nuclear. But it's politically difficult. Um, the reality, however, is that nuclear, as we do it today, uses a huge amount of water to cool the power plants. And in fact, we're water limited in a huge number of states um, for nuclear. So if you, if you sort of use conservative estimates, we might be able to double or triple the amount of nuclear before we run out of water to cool it with, unless we come up with new cooling technologies for the nuclear. I think it's difficult to imagine America will pull out completely from nuclear for strategic and other reasons. So we'll always be engaged with nuclear. So I think at the end of the day, the nuclear question is going to come down to, are we going to use 100 gigawatts? Are we going to use 300 gigawatts and triple it? Um, Because it won't be zero and it won't be all of it because we don't have enough cooling unless you then intone, you know, fifth generation nuclear technologies that don't exist yet, which means they won't arrive on time, or fusion, which doesn't exist yet, which means it doesn't arrive on time given that we need to do this by 2035. So my perspective is there'll be nuclear. It'll be the same amount we have today or maybe double. Um, so that means it might be 200 gigawatts. Uh, so that means it'll be about one sixth or one fifth of future supply. So it's still a huge amount of renewables. Then you've got to talk about the other candidate, which is carbon sequestration. And the reality is we just don't have enough holes to stick it in. And we don't know that it's going to stay there because the CO2 will eat the plugs in the wells that they think they're going to put it in. Uh, and here's really the, here's the, the kicker. If you measure everything that humans make every year, including agriculture, and you weigh it all, um, the amount of CO2 we produce every year is equivalent to the product of all other industries combined. So if you're going to do carbon sequestration at a scale that's significant enough to, to hit emissions, you need to create an industry that's as big as nearly all other industries. 
And you're not going to do that in 15 years either. So the reality is it'll be a little bit of nuclear and a huge amount of renewables. All right. So, well, one thing you say, Saul, clearly in your book is that there doesn't need to be trade-offs. And I know we talked earlier about what it would take and to well, what it would take to electrify the homes and businesses, which really are the first sort of, you know, battle to to fight here in many ways. Um, so, what does that mean for for people? Because I mentioned earlier how there are some trade-offs from where I sit currently today, but you say that doesn't there doesn't have to be. So, why is that? Well, it doesn't have to be if we if we get the regulations right and we get the financing right and um, we, we will get there and we'll get there very soon. Um, but there are, I, I think one of the big challenges is, and this really is where I think the equity battles should be. You hear equity and climate equity talked about a lot now. Um, in a survey I just saw, I think, the probability of a household with $400,000 a year of income buying an electric vehicle for their next vehicle is 75%. The probability of you buying an electric vehicle for your next vehicle if you're a household with an income of $40,000, which is sort of meet, you know, the lot, the bottom two um, quintiles, uh, is only two or three or 4%. So you don't solve climate change if only the richest 50% can afford to do it. It's got to be 100%. So the huge challenge to me is how do we make this pencil for everyone and how do you make this economic for everyone? And I don't have all the answers by any, any means because as, as an economist or a financier, I make a great engineer. But, you know, we solve problems like this before with, with financing of, of various kinds and we're going to need to do that again. So... so- what do you think is the role of the utility in all of this? They do have access to cheap capital. They do have the customers, um, but they're not innovative. Uh, so wh- where do you see the role of the utilities in electrification of everything? I, I think this is, a, this is a huge question. There's no way that you can balance this grid without utility infrastructure, meaning wires. My founding partner in rewiring America is Alex Lasky, who ran a company called O-Power and which whose customers were utilities. And when you talk to him, he talks, he says, I have a really soft spot for utilities. I'm very fond of them. You, you hear almost no one else in America say that. So you might get a slightly different answer from Alex than you'll get from me. You, can, you could say the following, um, the incentives of investor-owned utilities are not currently aligned. And we granted investor-owned utilities a monopoly in a, maybe it was a good idea at the time, um, piece of legislation 40, 50 years ago. We need to address that. We need to have something like, um, the, you know, the freedom of transactions on the internet where anyone can be a shop, anyone can be a provider or a user. We need the same level of unrestricted access to the grid for every household. That's the only way you're going to have my 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 house power your your electric vehicle when your battery is low and how i can have your car power my furnace when mine is low and so the utilities are going to be players in that and the investor owned utilities we need to rewrite the rules and FERC was actually doing a pretty good job uh this year on rewriting some of those rules making the cost of connecting solar etc smaller federal energy regulatory commission yes we had neil chatterjee on recently so we need to um we need to continue those efforts. FERC has a very important role to play and in leveling the playing field. And then 
but uh, uh, we need to probably look at carefully and maybe change the sort of regulated monopoly aspect of many of the utility rules we have around the country. But there are, like, you can see little programs that are good. So there's um, the federal FFB, which is a federal financing bank that's part of the Department of Energy, actually will offer financing through um, regional utilities, not investor-owned ones, and, and, and electricity co-ops for you to do electrification retrofits to your home where it's on-bill financed and where the customer owns the asset once they've finished buying it on-bill. If you could have one thing happen everywhere, you would have the utilities play that role. You would like ultimately, you can imagine the future could be won by three different people. There's ec the economics is going to be in favor of this being cheaper than fossil fuels. Who could win? The householder, the utility, or some third party company that sort of ties it all together. I personally would like households to win. And given that we control utilities, <laughs> We should allow the utilities to operate. We need them, but we should regulate them so that the households win. A way you would do that is utilities do on-bill financing, but the customers end up owning the assets that are behind the meter. If we did that nationally, we would be in a spectacular place. There will be third parties, and I don't know, you know, maybe this is the answer, maybe it isn't. I still bias my, my, my desire is that the household wins. But, you know, there, there are all these people who will finance the solar on your roof and they will own the asset on your roof, et cetera, et cetera. There are these types of companies that are, that are providing those solutions. Of the three things, my preference is for all the financial gain to go to the household um, and the utilities can be a good player in that or they will go away because there will be an uprising and we will overthrow the state-sponsored <laughs> monopoly. Oh, just that. <laughs> well, well, to round this left or right, what I just said that could that could be centrist position. I think it, it, it was it was quite casual too, which made it fun. But yeah, you know, I don't, that's funny because that could be far left or far right. It could actually work in either. Yeah, the far right and the far left look awfully similar in their in their desires around owning their own solar. Right? It's about independence. Yeah. And, yeah. So do do you really care to own all that stuff? Like, do you really want to own your you know, HVAC, or would you rather just subscribe and pay a monthly fee to somebody and it like is cheaper and it's all better? You did hear me hedge my bets. And I did say there are startups that might do it right. Yeah. I, I think the answer to that is twofold. I probably would prefer to subscribe to most things, except where it becomes an appreciating asset. When the US federal government created the Federal Housing Authority, which created Fannie Mae, which basically declared US housing stock, American infrastructure, access to special low-cost financing, they created the U.S. household market, right? And a huge amount, it's the largest source of, you know, it's the largest capital market in the world still today. We have built into our political systems that our homes are our appreciating assets. So I would, I would think where these things end up being net positive on the home as an asset, the consumer will want to own them because that's the game we've played for a long time. And that's what you see playing out here in Australia. Yeah, and it should be added to your home price. This is one thing we need is disclosure of the investments people make like that, which don't always get valued in and included in your home value. Right. You would love to somehow make sure that the furnace, the hot water, the things that are bolted to the walls, the hot water heater, the furnace, the solar, the, the car charges and the main panel, 
you'd like those to be appreciating assets with the house, right? Or maybe not, but, you know, I think there are other pieces of these solutions that we're talking about where maybe not. But um, I think, again, a greater mind than mine will have a more nuanced answer. But I think the answer to your question, Brandon, is somewhere like where it becomes part of the appreciating value of the homes, the homeowner is probably going to want that. My last question to you, all that I feel like I want to, you know, put out there because it is so timely is, you know, is is coronavirus as we hopefully emerge from this pandemic over the next year as people slowly get vaccinated, et cetera, will this you think be the mobilizer that we needed? You talk about in your book the history of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, the World War II mobilization, the space race. Do you think COVID could be this moment? We keep hearing about the concept of these new deals in Europe in particular coming out of the pandemic. Joe Biden has said that this latest stimulus we talked about in the beginning of the show, that is not the end of it. He wants to pick up that line. Do you think this will be the 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 warp speed initiative coming out of coronavirus, or is there just not enough uh, bandwidth for that right now? And I'm talking about in the U.S. specifically. We didn't use the global financial crisis terribly wisely to address this issue, so history is against coronavirus being the the nucleator of big action here. We just did a job study under Rewiring America where you can show um, that if we do all of this, it will create you know. 8 million near-term jobs and, and sus- millions of sustained long-term jobs by doing this electrification project. So if, if, if the COVID recovery is about jobs and a focus on creating jobs, uh, certainly the most jobs to, that can be created that are going to necessarily be localized are going to be these retrofit of our 128 million homes and their 250 million vehicles. So it's a huge opportunity. Um, I guess... You, you can always rely on politics to fuck it up is what I might leave you with. <laughs> <laughs> That's the lesson here, children. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I di- I, you didn't tell me before we went on whether this was PG, but uh, governments can mess it up. Um, but I think it is. Yeah. Anyway, it's it, we could do it. It could be good. Well, Saul, this is really awesome and we could keep talking forever, I'm sure. Um, We always end our show or usually end our show with a segment we call Say Something Nice where Brandon and Shane, our Democrat and Republican, have to say something nice about the opposing party. Brandon and Shane, do you guys have something? And Saul, if we give you the final word, could you uh, chime in there knowing that we we don't know your political affiliation here? Shane? I, I have something, and, uh, and 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 before that, I've been thinking really hard, Saul, and I'm embarrassed because I'm I'm just not as smart as I'd like to present. Um, I was circling around something with Millennium Falcon, and then I realized that's a little clunky. So I was looking at hyperdrive when trying to think about you know the new sort of coined term uh, to to accelerate this climate transition. But I'm I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But I want to circle around hyperdrive. Are you watching Mandalorian? Of course, I'm watching Mandalorian. Oh my god! Absolutely. Did you freak out on Friday? No, 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 nothing, 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 nothing. No, we're behind. We're behind. We're behind. Yeah, I'm like, I was doing like, right kids right now. My son will kill you after <laughs> I kill you. Yeah, we can't. Okay. We can't. We no can't. giveaways for the Mandalorian, but I'm taking it that there's inspiration. Shane, I'm feeling something along lightning bolt. Lightning bolt's good. Lightning bolt's good. We, well, let's, yeah, let's, let's, we'll workshop let's this. this around. We got to workshop it. I think, you know, we're smart enough to get this done. The Australian political narrative is being won by the notion that Australia will be a renewable superpower. For a country that was always in the armpit of the universe, it feels great, finally, <laughs> that we can be a superpower at something. So <laughs> there you go. And it's an important something. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, Mach so, 10? I don't know. <laughs> so my, my something nice then, Julia, wrapping, wrapping back in is um, about Senator Carper. Um, because again, I think I mentioned several times <laughs> that we've, you know, we've had a long winding road and, and I don't want to take credit by the way, because it was my, my partner, Scott did most of the work on our side and, um, and really the HFC language led on the HFC language, but Senator Carper, uh, was the Democrat lead uh, in the Senate environment and public works committee. Um, obviously Senator John Barrasso was the counterpart, but it, it's one of those things where it truly was bipartisan. So it's not, you know, thank everyone and for dragging everyone along, but just, it, it's great to see people get to work, um, not just, you know, get on Sunday morning shows and criticize the people across the political aisle, but get to work. And so it was, it was really fun to, to, to sort of watch this process play out. And he was a great leader in that part, in that process. Well, kudos to you. It's a win for your firm at the end of the year here. One good thing in 2020 and, and good for the climate. Uh, the, the stat that I saw is just that HFC language alone, assuming this all passes, uh, will undo all of the rollbacks that the Trump administration put in place to climate policy. So basically netting out his impact on the climate over these past four years, which is both encouraging and and uh, troubling. Um, Brandon, over to you in this bipartisan segment. What is your saying something nice? Well, it's the holiday season, so I'm feeling generous. So I have two. Ooh. Uh, one is to whatever Republicans are in the Oval Office right now, when Trump is melting down, talking about martial law and seizing the voting machines, whoever those Republicans are, they're restraining him from some really dangerous stuff. <laughs> I'm grateful for, for that. Uh, is that is really crazy. And um, I think we should be thinking about the 25th Amendment at this point. Number two, in all seriousness, I am kind of serious about that as well, but uh, Chairman uh, Murkowski, uh, you know, for her leadership on this energy bill uh, that is about to be passed, uh, she's been uh, relentless on it for, uh, you know, several years now uh, and getting it across the goal line. This is a, a good down payment on what we need to do. It's a good start. We need to do a lot more. Uh, but uh, this is good progress. Saul, so bring us home here. What is a, a, a say something nice you have to close out our Christmas special episode? Oh, how about this? Um, I have nothing nice to say of either American party for their politics of 2020, but I am enormously hopeful that in 2021, both parties will come together realizing that America can lead the world, solve climate change much faster than the Paris targets, therefore reestablishing its role in the world as a true thought leader and doer and, and actor and, and global actor. And it will be achieved with the magical American combination of private-public partnerships. Well, that is the end of this episode, Saul. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. So nice to meet you, having followed your work for a while now. Um, and thanks to everyone for listening. We really appreciate you tuning in uh, at the end of the year here. Reminder that you can find Political Climate pretty much wherever you get podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, all the places. We're also on Twitter at poly underscore climate. So find us there. Uh, I'm Julia Piper. Brandon and Shane are my co-hosts. Thanks again, everyone. Tune in next time. I mean, Saul, I do have to say that the number one question we got from, uh, well, it was just like two people on Twitter were like, can you have Saul comment on his beard? You know, like, is this like a new movement? Is this how does he take care of it? Like, <laughs> the people want to know. <laughs> well, we're going to be Christmas themed and it's my, my um, Santa with 20 years younger beard. I 
prefer to be shaved, except I don't like the process of shaving. I grow um, sandpaper within about four hours. My wife has sensitive skin and my children love the beard because they identify with the beard. So when I shave, the family screams at me. So I've just gone for having a nest and my seven-year-old daughter sort of climbs up and cuddles inside of it. So it's, I, I get nothing but positive feedback in my immediate family, despite the fact that I have been told after giving a talk once, I still remember this woman came up to me and said, I really love your talk. I really want to do this work on climate change with you, but your beard is very intimidating and scary. I think you should shave it off. Yeah, I, I, I would, our listeners can't see you, Saul, but I would say like, think scary reliever in baseball. Like if that guy's coming out in the ninth <laughs> inning to close the game, like I want to see, like, like I would be intimidated as a batter to see like you coming out of the bullpen to close that game out. That's kind of what you look like. I, I'm, I much prefer that feedback than the other feedback, which is you look like the Unabomber. <laughs> you kind of do now that you say it. That's amazing. But even if you were shaving, we know your house would be all electric. And actually, be- actually, I really believe not even electric for, for shaving. I'm like straight blade guy. Ooh, <laughs> let it be known. Most, most low carbon shave ever. Mm-hmm.